Well, our text is uh, the, 20, the whole chapter, a little bit long, the 26th chapter of Acts. It's on page 935 in your pew Bible. So let me read this. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. And therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. And they've known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made my God, by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem, and I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them, often in all the synagogues, and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance." For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. And to this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles." And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind. 
most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether long or short, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the emperor, or the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or punishment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Let's pray. Thank you again for your holy and inspired and infallible and inerrant word. Lord, please use it again today um, for our growth, for our good, and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is the uh, third time in the book of Acts that Paul's given his testimony. The first time was in chapter 9. Um, the, he alludes to it some here in this, but that was the full Damascus Road experience. The second time was in chapter 22, and then here. So why three times? Well, the first time, it was to be sure up front that people understood that it was by the sovereign power of God alone that people would get saved, the dramatic Damascus Road experience. And that's the most important thing to say because we tend to talk about ourselves too much and it's important to point people to God. And then the second time in chapter 22, Paul gives his testimony to outwardly religious people, church people in, in a sense, to people well acquainted, well acquainted with religion, small r, religion, with the outward trappings of church, people who could speak Christianese, uh, but didn't really know Christ. And now here, in what I just read in chapter 26, Paul speaks to non-believers, to pagans. That's a harsh word, but accurate. This was to people who made no pretense at all of being Christians. So the three testimonies in the book of Acts um, differed in these ways, but they were at the heart all the same. And the main point is God saves people. He's in the restoration business of bringing dead things back to life. And no one, no kind of person, no culture, no country at all is beyond his reach. So that's why there's these three uh, kinds of testimonies. In, in our text today, we learn a number of things uh, about speaking to non-believers about Christ. And um, if you've seen your outline there, you notice how this chapter breaks into three parts. Uh, verses 1 through 11, Paul, Paul talks about what his life was like before coming to Christ. Uh, in 12 through 18, he talks about how he came to Christ. And in 19 through the end, he talks about his life after his conversion. And I would encourage you, please don't stop there and 
uh, merely study how Paul did it. I would ask you to listen <clears throat> with an ear to make it personal. If you haven't done that or need reminding to do that, let's think about how we can formulate our own testimonies along these same lines. So as you listen, um, think about how you can share your testimony with a non-believer uh, using the same format. What was your life like before Christ? Then what were the circumstances, your own particular story, uh, when you understood the gospel, the um, good news of what Christ has done, and when you trusted Christ, what was that like? And then thirdly, uh, what is your Christian life like now? How has God changed you? And maybe more than that, it might be more compelling to tell a person, how is he continuing to change you? Some of you uh, might be starting to get nervous, um, talking about giving your testimony. You're thinking, can't we just leave it as a nice Bible study and Paul's experience and just kind of watch it as a movie? Well, no, we can't. Uh, this is news that's too good to keep to ourselves. If you've never done so, let me challenge you if you can, to get your testimony um, down to a three to five minute presentation using the before, how, and after. And if it's only three to five minutes, that means it's only a minute and a half for each section. So you can do it and memorize it. And I bet if you do, God will put you in situations where you can use it. I know it's scary, and I know you feel nervous about it. Maybe you can identify uh, with the Christian author and speaker, uh, Tony Campalo. I don't know if you know who that is. Um, we probably would have some theological differences with him, but uh, I heard him at a men's conference uh, right after I was saved in 1981. And he said, I heard him say this, he was on a plane that was nearly empty, and he prayed what he thought would be a safe prayer. He said, Lord, if you want me to speak to someone about you, then have them sit next to me. Well, he didn't look for someone to sit beside. Um, he sat alone and he prayed this safe prayer. Well, here comes a guy and with all these empty seats around, he sits right beside Tony Campalo. And so Campalo prays again and says, Lord, if you want me to speak to this guy, give me a sign. And he says, the man turned to him, grabbed his arm, and said, Mr., I need God. <laughs> and Tony Campalo prayed again, and he said, Lord, give me another sign. <laughs> Does it feel like that sometimes? What if the equivalent, not as dramatic, but what if the equivalent of that happened to you? If someone honestly and sincerely and passionately said, there's stuff going on that I never expected to happen and you seem to have some insight into the, help me, what would you tell them? If you had a three minute memorized testimony you'd have a response. You wouldn't be thrown by the heat and the emotion of the moment. When we confessed just a bit ago, we read uh, 1 Peter 3.15, 
It says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And putting your testimony into this format, we'll do that. So, let's look now at the first 11 verses. And the main point of this is, before conversion, we are in direct personal opposition to the kingdom of God. And not just the kingdom of God. More accurately, we're against God himself. Some of us are very polite in, in doing this. Uh, some shake their fist in God's face. Some are polite and say, no, thank you. Leave me alone. Well, this is called original sin, sin or total depravity, and it means we are all born opposed to God. We all express it in different ways, <clears throat> but that's the true desire of our hearts. Humans are born selfish and self-centered, and for Paul, it manifested itself in hatred for Christians. And verse 4 uh, says he, it went back as far as he could remember to childhood, and then he blossomed into a, a law guy. He, he loved the law. It was strict, and it was firm, and he loved it. Phariseeism fit him well. I think it fits us all well before we experience grace. As non-believers, we have a religious, we, we would love a religious, again, small r, religious system with solid handles on it, uh, something that we can grab hold of and do. I can do this. I got this, we think. Verse 9 and following tells what he did to people who didn't keep the law like he did. I think it's really interesting here that uh, Paul uses this idea in his testimony to non-believers. I think that's because everyone has a law streak in them. We instinctively gravitate to laws, but in our fallen condition, there are our own laws, of course. Even if you say, well, I'm a free spirit and I believe in no laws. Well, that's a law, too. So don't be afraid to talk to people about the law. Talk about the laws that were dear to you. People will identify with that because they have them, too. Think back to my own story, and I had a few big laws that I went by, and probably the main one was for lots of different reasons and thought about this, how I came up with this. But I'd come to the conclusion that as an adult, whatever you do in life, you ought to do your best. You ought to be sincere. And then I very naturally applied that law in the two most important areas of my life, which was my family and my job. I think I might have told some of you, but I ran a steakhouse for 12 years and um, looked up the orders one day and realized I've cooked eight tons of ribeye and five tons of ground sirloin. And I wanted to do it right. And this was a higher-end restaurant, and I wanted to run it well and with integrity. But I ended up another long story, skimming money 
so that I didn't have to pay as much tax. And I told John when I applied for the job, don't worry, but um, the person standing here preaching to you is a former thief. Zacchaeus is my favorite Bible character. I paid the money back as best I knew how, but I'm a forgiven thief. Uh, Zacchaeus was a short man. He had to climb up in the tree to see Jesus. Now, I'm tall, but inside, very short. And Jesus looked upon me in mercy, and he said, today I'm coming to your house. And he did. Well, in the area of my family, I tried to be a good husband and father, and even though the outside of my family um, looked good, I knew the truth inside. It was a sham. Uh, the quiet moments were too quiet, and that was because I knew I was faking it much of the time. So in speaking of my life before uh, coming to Christ, I applied my biggest life rule, which is do your best, in the two most important areas of my life, and I failed in both of them. And it wasn't hard from there to realize that if I failed in the two areas that I tried the hardest in, surely I had failed in all the others. And so I was exposed. At verse 9, uh, Paul was convinced that all that he was doing was right. And so was I. Paul, in speaking to non-believers, says, I too, or I myself, the ESV says. So he identifies with them, and he understood their frame of mind, and so let's, let us be real and be honest about our sin. And that resonates with people. I think they identify with that. And notice the approach um, that Paul is not taking there is an attitude which is completely missing in this text. Hope you haven't, but maybe you've heard a testimony. I've heard a couple. In so many words, the person is saying, you know, um, I used to be as big a jerk as you are. Um, no, really, I'm, I was messed up almost as much as you are. But then I found Jesus. Well, there's none of that here. The first three verses set the tone. Um, I consider myself fortunate. Um, I beg you, um, please listen to me patiently. And the reason we should be humble is that you and I have been graciously saved from terrible sin. God snatched us from the miry pit and set our feet on a firm foundation, and that rock was Christ. We were in deadly sin on the way to hell. Now, maybe you wish you had a <clears throat> testimony about being a former thief. Hesitated with that a little bit. Of once I told the kids how to set things on fire, and now I'm telling you how to skim money. So <laughs> not, not the best thing to do. But maybe you wish you had a testimony about being a former thief, and that would be good. No, you've got a testimony of your own. Then, yes, the details are different, but you can express before your conversion, you were in direct, 
personal opposition to the sovereign God of the entire universe. If you ask God to help you articulate that, he will. Well, that's the first part. In the second part, in verse 12, we move to the how part. In the first 11 verses, a lot of time, a lot of years are represented in those first 11 verses. But the middle section, 12 through 18, takes place in a single moment, his conversion. In verse 12, he says he was acting according to his lost nature, as explained in the previous 11 verses. He says, I was on one of these journeys to persecute the kingdom, and I met Christ personally. He didn't seek out Christ. Christ sought him out. In fact, the old Paul, Saul, was in fact happy that Christ had been killed. The last thing he expected was meeting that Christ. We are converted solely by the work of Christ. This is not something we manufacture or produce or even seek. It's something we receive as a gift. And Paul has been fighting that idea, and he's been kicking against the goads or the cattle prods. And in verse 15 and following is, is where he ties the before to the how. You were expressing your opposition by persecuting the church. Jesus is saying, well, it's really me you're persecuting. The shocking thing for Paul here was the fact that the dead Jesus is now alive and talking. He'd heard some rumors or some testimonies from the crazy zealots that Jesus rose from the dead, but he passed that off. Well, now... The, the rightfully, in his mind, dead Jesus is speaking to him. And likely, one of the laws, maybe kind of like my do your best, uh, one of the laws that Paul loved so much was actually from the scriptures. We find it in Deuteronomy 21, and it's repeated again in Galatians 3. But that is, cursed is he who hangs on a tree. Paul loved that resonated with him. Yep, that's right. If you are cursed, then you need to hang on a tree. And that's what Jesus had happened to him, and that's why he, Paul, loved the crucifixion of Christ and sought to kill others who believe the same thing. Jesus got what he deserved in Paul's mind, but now salvation comes to him like a lightning bolt because the only way a rightly cursed dead man could be alive is if he was somehow vindicated. And then it all clicks into place for him. This is the long-promised Messiah. This is Isaiah's suffering servant. This is the balm of Gilead. This is David's king and Lord. This is Noah's ark, which saves people from the flood of judgment and carries them to safe ground. This is Joshua, who leads his people to the promised land. This is the blessed man of Psalm 1. Paul used to think he was the blessed man of Psalm 1, who didn't sit and stand with scoffers and was firm like a tree. No, Jesus is the only blessed man of Psalm 1. 
this is the one whom the Father said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The last man in the universe who should never have died was sacrificed for sinners, of which Paul would later say, of which I am chief. I don't know if you've followed that before, but early in his ministry, he said, I am the worst of the apostles. And somewhere in the middle of his letters, he said, I am the worst of all Christians. He expanded it. And towards the end of his ministry, he said, I am the chief of all sinners. Well, this was the beginning of the understanding of that. The only possible explanation of what he was hearing was that Jesus was alive and really the Son of God. So God in his mercy put it all together for Paul. He opened his eyes, he removed the scales, and he showed it to him. And this should be the tone of our how. I didn't find Christ, he found me. Yes, I made a decision for Christ, but that was after he showed me something, after he turned the lights on and I saw it. So when we talk to people about the how, we should use words like in verse 17. Uh, one translation says, Jesus rescued me. Um, the ESV says, Jesus delivered me. Or verse 18, I received forgiveness of my sins. And get this, a place among the sanctified, among the holy, among the set-apart people. How did someone like me ever get numbered among holy people? By the work of Christ. So from our side, as recipients of salvation, we ought to be saying something which leaves the impression I was wrong in a big way before God, and that is called confession, to confess that. Um, the word confessio, con means with, and fessio means to say, and so confession means to say along with God that such and such is true. So we should agree that he is right and we are wrong. And notice as before what tone is missing from the how part. Paul does not say, I really cleaned up my act. He isn't talking about fixing up something that has potential. He isn't talking about trying harder to keep the law. The last thing we need as Christians is a more rigorous application of the law in one sense. No, Jesus does that. And Paul tried all that. He didn't, it didn't work. He's talking about a whole new life. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come, Galatians 2.20. He's talking about not just a renovation project. He's talking about being moved from one kingdom to another, and they are as different as night and day from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, from the power of Satan to God. And Jesus says in verse 17, I will do that. 17 ends with, I rescue, I secure forgiveness of sins. So, in the how part, be sure you point to the person and work of Christ. This is where testimonies can choke. Don't say, I started going to church, or I became more serious about spiritual things, or I realized how important the Bible was. Yes, of course, those are all 
good things, but by themselves, by themselves, they are seedless grapes. I had a professor in seminary who said, seedless grapes are a biological monstrosity. Leave it to lazy modern people to come up with seedless grapes. Well, if your testimony does not center on the person and work of Christ, that is a spiritual monstrosity. That's not really fruit. I, I checked into it. Um, how, how do we keep getting seedless grapes if, if there's no seeds? And I looked it up, and what they do is take a small clump off the vine, break off the biggest stem, and they skin back, it, not bark, but whatever that is, coating on it, and, and they dip it in a growth hormone, and they stick it in the dirt. And it sends out little <coughs> roots, and that plant continues. So it's not a new plant. We're all eating the same old <laughs> seedless grape plant. There's no seed in it. It's not, and this guy said, technically, seedless grapes are not fruit because fruit has seeds in it. So to leave Christ out implies that you were clever enough to figure all this out on yourself, and that is exactly, precisely what did not happen. In fact, that's the reason it has to hit us like a lightning bolt from the outside because it will never come from the inside. A seedless grape is sweet, but there's no life in it. Our testimonies ought not to be that way. Implying that salvation changes people by attribu attributing that change to anything but Christ is the devil's work. We need to say that. It's scary and threatening enough just to give a testimony. If someone shakes you and says, Mr. I need God, don't choke. They're asking. The last thing a drowning person needs to hear is the lifeguard choking. Don't do that. So please be sure that Christ and his atonement is at the center of your testimony. Tell people what it was like for you when you first understood that. If you were raised in a Christian home and you can't remember the first time you heard it, tell about a time when you actually personally appropriated it yourself. Uh, another way to put that would be, uh, when did the heat and the light start? Review your life and try to identify when the heat came, if we can put it that way. When did it begin to grip you? When, when did, maybe you can't remember a particular conversion experience as such, but when did it come alive and grab hold of your heart? And some can honestly say they don't know the exact date, and this is often true in Reformed circles, but they can at least say, but I'm sure it was by age blank, 17 or 20 or 30 or when, whenever it was, <clears throat> or five. I don't know exactly, but I know for sure as of this day, I remember this, that it, that it was true of me today. So it's not so much when, but that when, it, whenever, when, if, that I am saved today. Don't know when, but I know I am today, and I can affirm full belief and trust in Christ. 
So you can't say, I was born in a Christian home and nothing more happened and here I am. If you were born a sinner, but now you're headed to heaven, something happened. Something intervened. Well, that's the how portion. Lastly, uh, Paul in 19 and following talks about the after and about how his life was changed. He got new marching orders. Verse 16 says Jesus has appointed him to something. You're saved. If you're saved, you have a new job. There's been a coup in your soul. It has been overthrown. There are now new desires and new affections. And 19 through 23 uh, shows the result of a changed life. And do notice the order. It's, it's pretty obvious. The changed life, the good works, come as a result of creation. Uh, good works and obedience don't earn salvation. They're the result of it. We can get that in verse 20 where he says, prove their repentance by deeds. Do good deeds in keeping with repentance. We're not to be judgmental, but we are to be fruit inspectors. It's prove their repentance by the deeds. James tells us that a faith that doesn't produce good deeds is a dead faith. If the seed doesn't produce another grape, then the seed might be dead. Live seeds produce fruit, and obedience is one of the marks of a Christian. Notice, too, moving on, that Paul, Paul's new life started right where he was in verse 20. He started preaching first in Damascus. That's where he had his conversion experience. So get involved in a ministry of some kind where you are. It's either the third or the fourth vow that you took when you joined this church that you said you will support the worship and the work of this church. You will support the worship, meaning you'll come do what you're doing on Sunday morning when it's time to go to church. You said, I'm coming here. And the work of the church, you also said, I will find a job at that church, some kind of ministry. So that's what you can tell other people. It might sound arrogant, but you can say, I'm now part of the solution and not the problem. You are now a producer, no longer just a consumer. Some jump in and they get going, but they get frustrated. Um, they think the changes aren't coming fast enough. They want the Christian life to be more like turning a jet ski, but more often than not, it's like an ocean liner or maybe more likely a battleship. The progress might seem slow, but it should be steady. If it's not, you repent of that and you move on. Repentance and faith are the two marks of a Christian. You received him by repenting. As you received Christ Jesus, so walk. You received him by repenting and believing the gospel. And so now you repent of something and you replace it with belief. If you only repent, 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 or believe, 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 and never repent, you're just going to be going in circles. So Christians walk by repentance and faith. And so you can tell people how that marks your life. And uh, when, did you catch this? When non-believers hear your testimony, be prepared for verse 24, you're out of your mind. 
And you can say, why, yes, I am. <laughs> I'm in a new mind. <laughs> but what else would you expect from Festus, a lost person, to say? You've got to remember where they're coming from. And perversion and such is running rampant and getting worse in our society, so don't be too surprised when someone says, you're nuts, you're, you're out of your mind with this Christianity stuff. So don't be surprised at this reaction of Festus in verse 24. Do note that Paul was talking to Agrippa, wasn't he? When Festus interrupts with, you're out of your mind. And he answers Festus politely, but he goes right back to Agrippa in 27, who seemed a bit more open. Verse 27 is very instructive to us as to what we should do when we finish our testimony. We give the before, the how, and the after, and then you ask, what about you? Do you believe? He didn't say, what do you think of my testimony? Which is threatening enough, but he puts it on the Bible. He says, do you believe the scriptures and the prophets? Do you believe what that says? Sometimes we need direct questions even if the answer might not be what we had hoped for. In verse 28, Agrippa doesn't bite. He says, you didn't think it'd be that easy, did you, Paul? I'm smarter than that. But look at Paul's answer, short time or long, doesn't matter to me. I pray to God. I'm looking to the one with the power to make dead things alive, and I can't persuade you anyway, and that's helpful for people to hear when they think you're a salesman trying to close something and you can say, I can't make you decide a thing. I'm asking God for you. There's a great verse that I'm in Acts and if you look back on 13, chapter 13, I'll read it to you, but it's 1348. I think um, Paul has this firmly in mind, 1348. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And here it is. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many who were already appointed for this, that's the elect, believe. And so Paul apparently has that firmly in mind when he says, short time or long doesn't matter to me. Uh, it's all the same. I pray to God for you. So, as we close, a couple of questions could be someone here this morning who's been exposed by God's word and for the first time they're saying, you know what, I don't have a testimony. I'm still into the before. I, I don't have a how or an after. Well, if that's you, then please simply confess that fact to God and tell him you now know the how and that it's Jesus alone and you don't have to have all the facts of the Bible but you do need to start with God you're right I'm wrong I see Jesus as the answer and I'm now doing something about it I've been so wrong please forgive me I trust and believe that Jesus took my place on the cross and that he's given me a life that I couldn't lead as a gift and I want that I want it and for those for whom it has been made personal, how's the after portion going? 
Here's a hard question somebody asked me once. Would you commend your Christian life to a non-believer? I had to think about that. I would like to say yes. But if not, then learn from this text. Repent of the fact that you wouldn't recommend your life to a non-Christian and accept by faith that he is the center of your life and that seed gives life and you go from there. It is all right to tell people you don't have all of this together and that you're not uh, perfect in this. Mark 4.27 says, Night or day, whether the farmer sleeps or wakes, the seed grows, though he does not know how. The seed contains the power, and it changes people. It really does. Proud, self-righteous, angry men can tell their wives and children they're sorry for crushing them with the law. You can find the strength. You don't have to be right all the time and children you can obey your parents and wives can submit to cranky husbands. You can tell people that. When everything isn't explained like you like to be, imagine that. Do you believe your own testimony? Do you believe all of this? God rescues sinners. He forgives their sin and he gives them a place among the sanctified. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how we thank you that you have intervened in our lives, that you have made a preemptive strike of grace upon us and in us. And thank you that you give us the privilege of sharing this with others. And so, Lord, as um, hard as it might feel, give us the courage that Paul found of saying that those who are appointed will believe. And so give us joy and freedom as we do this. We admit our uh, fears. We admit our weakness in this. And when the people were leaving and Jesus said, you're not leaving too, are you? We want to say along with the apostles, to whom else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. It's the only game in town. And so, Lord, we best we're able, we recommit ourselves to it afresh this day. In Jesus' name, again, amen. Let's stand and sing um, the song about sharing. Um, shout to the north. Please stand. Men of faith, rise up and sing Of the great and glorious King You are strong when you feel weak In your brokenness complete Shout to the north and the south 
sing to the east and the west jesus is savior to all lord of heaven and earth rise up women of the truth stand and sing to broken hearts who can know the healing power of our awesome King of God? Shout to the north and the south, sing to the east and the west. Jesus is Savior to all, Lord of heaven and earth. We've been through fire, we've been through rain We've been refined by the power of His name We've fallen deeper in love with You You've burned the truth on our lips Shout to the north and the south Sing to the east and the west Jesus is Savior to all, Lord of heaven and earth. Rise up, church, with broken wings. Fill this place with songs again of our God who reigns on high. By His grace again will fly. Shout to the north and the south, sing to the east and the west. Jesus is Savior to all, Lord of heaven and earth. Shout to the north and the south, sing to the east and the west. Jesus is Savior to all, Lord of heaven and earth, Lord of heaven and earth, Lord of heaven and earth. We have worshiped together as the people of God, and so we can now go out and see all of life as worship. We have been loved by God himself through his word and fellowship with each other and prayer and singing. And so now let us love others freely. And we've been served by the spirit. And so let us do that.